In October of 2016, Larissa Lonehill would leave her mother's town home in Rapid City, South Dakota. Within another day, she would disappear, with only a vague trail being laid out to where she may have gone. A trail that would bring many questions, but absolutely zero answers. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 13, The Vanishing of Larissa Lonehill. Hello everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick notes before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a bi-weekly true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube, with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. Now, without further delay, on to today's case. Out in the Great Plains, sitting in the southwest area of South Dakota, on the Nebraska border, is the Pine Ridge Reservation, the home of the Oglala Sioux Tribe. The reservation is home to approximately 19,000 people and spans an area of 3,468.85 square miles, or just above 2,220,000 acres of ground. The majority of that area is contained within the state of South Dakota, with a mere 1% being located just over the border in Nebraska, making it one of the largest reservations in the United States. It was here that Larissa Lonehill was born and raised. There's not much publicly available about Larissa. She was 21 years old in 2016, so she was born around the year of 1995 to Lisa Lonehill, and she was one of eight children. Larissa has been described by her tight-knit family as loving, caring, and always willing to help. Given the economic and social hardships on the Pine Ridge Reservation, life would not always be easy for Larissa. She would attend high school, but would drop out before being able to graduate. When she was 19 years old, she would give birth to a baby girl. Larissa has been continuously described as being a loving and caring mother. She, however, would unfortunately fall victim to drug addiction, and the father of her child would obtain custody. Larissa, determined to be an active mother in her child's life, would see her child as much as was humanly possible for her. I wasn't able to find anything that stated the exact distance that Larissa lived from her daughter, but she would hitchhike or even walk the distance to see her if required. At some point, while Larissa resided on the Pine Ridge Reservation in the community of Manderson, she would begin making frequent trips to Rapid City, 83 miles to the northwest, to stay with her older sister, Carol Piper, at her apartment. Larissa has been noted by her sister as being extremely helpful during her time there, cooking and cleaning without being prompted, and being a fantastic aunt to Carol's children, reading and playing with them constantly. In late September of 2016, there was a confrontation between Larissa and Carol, and Larissa was asked to leave the apartment. According to reports, Carol had seen text messages to Larissa indicating that she was back into drugs, a fact that was confirmed upon hearing from their brother that Larissa was indeed smoking meth inside the apartment bathroom. Carol would tell the Rapid City Journal that several days later, the sisters would speak again, and she informed Larissa that she needed to seek substance abuse treatment. Before ending the conversation, they reportedly told each other, I love you. The final bit of Larissa's last known movements began on October 2, 2016. Larissa was visiting her mom, Lisa, who was living in Rapid City at the time. Lisa has noted that along with being a great helper to Carol, Larissa was also a great helper to her. 
Lisa has a chronic illness and Larissa would come over whenever she wasn't feeling well and help to cook, clean, and just take care of her mother. On this date, Larissa was sitting with her mother on the back porch of her Rapid City townhouse, discussing the argument that had led to Larissa being kicked out of Carol's apartment. Speaking on this event to the Rapid City Journal, Lisa would say, quote, I told her, whatever she did to upset Carol, just don't do it again. Lisa has noted that during this conversation, she would get a terrible, dreadful feeling in the pit of her stomach, as if she was never going to see her daughter again. Larissa would then leave the townhome with her boyfriend and a female friend, stating that they were going to be heading to the nearby Rushmore Mall to hang out and possibly do some shopping. Lisa's gut feeling she got during the visit would soon ring true, as this would be the last time she would see Larissa. The next day on October 3rd, a cousin of Larissa's received a text message from her where Larissa informed the cousin that she was going to be attending a party that night with two male friends from Pine Ridge. I should note that it's not specified if they were from the Pine Ridge Reservation in general or from the community of Pine Ridge, which is located at the southern end of the reservation on the Nebraska-South Dakota border. Larissa's boyfriend, who has never been named publicly, would later tell police that Larissa left his house on October 3rd with two other males, one of which Larissa introduced as her cousin. When Larissa didn't return for several days, and after being unable to contact her, the boyfriend called one of Larissa's brothers to let him know of his concerns. The brother would then report Larissa missing. Investigation into Larissa's disappearance was seemingly slow to start. April 2017 articles from the Rapid City Journal note that investigators had been investigating Larissa's disappearance since November of 2016, while she would have been reported missing in early October. The lack of urgency most likely has to do with the fact that Larissa was 21 at the time, therefore an adult, and was really able to come and go as she pleased. It's unknown if police were aware of her history with drugs right off the bat, but at the risk of sounding accusatory, if they did, individuals with that sort of history, coupled with another identifying factor that we will discuss later, don't always get the highest sense of urgency from law enforcement when they go missing. Police did eventually catch up with the two men Larissa left with on October 3rd, they, however, would only prove to create an even more confusing situation by giving conflicting statements. One of the men would tell police that they did indeed go to a party with Larissa that night, but he would claim that they only dropped her off and then left. The other man would claim that he never saw Larissa at all that evening. These individuals have also never been named publicly, but it has been confirmed by the family that neither man was a cousin of Larissa's. Carol would tell the Rapid City Journal, that she believed Larissa's connection to the men was drugs, citing text messages she had seen before her and Larissa had their confrontation. Carol would go on to tell the journal that she believed they were the last two people to see her sister alive. The snowy and cold South Dakota winter would become even colder for Larissa's family, as they would spend the next several months wondering what happened to her, wondering where she could have gone, but never receiving an answer. The coldness of winter, however, would not be enough to keep the vultures away. In the months following Larissa's disappearance, the family would report receiving unverified information about her location. One report was from a man who tried to extort money by saying he needed $500 to help bring Larissa back from Florida. Another was an individual claiming to be a psychic who said the young woman was buried underneath rocks at a quarry. 
They would tell the Rapid City Journal there was even acquaintances of Larissa's giving unverified and unsubstantiated reports of Larissa's whereabouts, even saying that she was alive but in hiding, effectively throwing the family and investigators off. In April of 2017, Rapid City Police would hold a press conference and give their first official call for help to the public, offering a $5,000 reward to whoever had information that could help solve the case. Captain James Johns, the head of the Rapid City Police Department's Criminal Investigations Division at the time, would state at the conference that information gathered by detectives had led them to believe that Larissa was most likely deceased, and that they believed her body was somewhere within 100 miles of Rapid City. Captain Johns would decline to explain how they had come across this information, citing that detectives did not want the suspect or suspects to know what information law enforcement possessed. Johns would then, in a somewhat conflicting statement, stress that the case was remaining classified as a missing persons case, and that more details would be made available once an arrest was made. When the question was posed as to why investigators didn't ask for the public's assistance sooner, police spokesman Brendan Medina said keeping the investigation under wraps at the time outweighed the advantages of speaking about it, saying, quote, there's benefit to an investigation when the suspects aren't in the know about our probes into a case. Lisa Lonehill, Larissa's mother, would also speak at the news conference, stating, quote, I miss my daughter every day. We are hopeful that we will be able to find her, and I hope and pray that somebody finds it in their heart to come forward to talk. We won't give up. She would go on to talk about Larissa and how she was a mother to a wonderful two-year-old girl with whom she loved to sing songs to, such as You Are My Sunshine. Press releases that accompanied the conference stated that while Rapid City Police were the lead on the investigation, they were also partnering with other agencies, such as the Pennington County Sheriff's Office, the Aglala Sioux Tribal Police, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The Rapid City Journal would state that the South Dakota National Guard's Aviation Unit and the Coddington County Search and Rescue K-9 team had also been heavily involved in the search and investigation. After the conference, Captain Johns would tell KOTA-TV, quote, We've investigated an enormous number of leads in this case. Now we need someone to come forward who has knowledge of her disappearance. Larissa has a two-year-old daughter and a number of family members who are in desperate need of closure about their loved ones. The spider reward, and what I personally feel are claims made by Rapid City Police that indicate they at least have some idea of what happened to Larissa, her case remains quiet until January 2020. I wish I could tell you that at that juncture, a break was announced in the case. Maybe new information was found that just needed some missing pieces from someone. Or there was a witness who came forward with new information even a suspect sketch or photo. Unfortunately, it was none of that. The Rapid City Police Department was renewing the $5,000 reward offer. However, new terms had been added. Initially, the reward was being offered to anybody who came forward with information that led to the arrest and conviction for whoever was responsible for Larissa's disappearance. Now, they were adjusting the criteria to include anyone who came forward with information that led police to the location of Larissa's body. In the press release, John Olson, captain of RCPD's Criminal Investigation Division, stated, quote, This is the first time we've relaxed the stipulations needed to attain community reward fund monies. 
Our hope is that by doing so, we can make it easier for anyone with information to come forward to aid us in the investigation. It's been three years since Larissa's disappearance, and we're working as hard as we can to bring closure to her loved ones. It was also noted that the case was still a missing persons case, but due to the length of time past, Larissa Lone Hill is presumed to be deceased. In the almost two years since the time of the rewards stipulation additions, there has been no new information or movement in Larissa's case. With five years having now passed since Larissa's disappearance, her family seems to be no closer now than they were then at finding the answers they so desperately seek. That essentially brings us to the end of the core part of Larissa's case. If you're thinking that that's a frustratingly small amount of information, you're not alone. And this is an all too common scenario. Which is why, before delving into theories, I think it is more than important to discuss the landscape of disappearances in South Dakota, especially when it comes to indigenous individuals. Anyone who listens to their fair share of true crime, or has been following the missing and murdered indigenous woman movement that has come to the forefront of social issues in this country in the last couple years, already knows what I'm talking about all too well. And those currently living it, such as those in Larissa's family, know it better than any of us. In short, a situation like Larissa's, where an indigenous woman's family sees her one day, and she seemingly vanishes without a trace the next day, paired with a lack of news coverage and delayed police response, is far from an uncommon scenario. This isn't an issue only within South Dakota, but all across indigenous nations and the states within which they reside. In this case, I'm only focusing on South Dakota because I believe there's plenty of information to get my point across, and I don't want to stray too far from my focus on Larissa's case. After looking through several different articles focusing on missing indigenous in South Dakota, I was able to find, depending on the time of publication, the South Dakota Attorney General's Office list of missing persons would generally average about 106 to 110 individuals reported missing at the time. Of those missing, 67 to 70 of them would be indigenous individuals. So approximately 64 of missing persons cases in South Dakota are indigenous individuals. Breaking the numbers down more, that 64 comes to an almost 50-50 split of males and females, with females having a slightly higher number. To round this all out, indigenous individuals only make up 8 to 9% of South Dakota's total population. Indigenous victims also make up approximately 40% of human trafficking victims in South Dakota. Once again, a mind-blowing number, considering their overall population. Now, if you want to talk about reporting by the media on these cases, Larissa's case has very little information available, and I found very little coverage. At best, I have a handful of sources. That's still more than what I was able to find by doing web searches on a majority of the indigenous names currently listed on South Dakota's Attorney General's website. Lakota Renville, an indigenous woman whose murder I covered in episode 9, also had a very small pool of coverage to work with, having even less than Larissa's. Obviously, a high number of cases go unpublicized, but any looking and searching at all will show a disproportionate lack of coverage when it comes to indigenous cases. As far as police involvement and dedication to cases, that's a bit trickier to really look at on my end, and even the most dedicated and thorough investigators aren't always going to release a ton of information, even to families, if it would mean jeopardizing their investigation. There's also a lot of blurred lines when it comes to jurisdictions and what crimes fall to who. 
While reservations generally have their own tribal police, as well as officers from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, depending on the location, other crimes within reservations, such as murder, fall under FBI jurisdiction. Anything that happens with tribal members off of reservations falls into the hands of local police, sheriff, etc. Furthermore, while this may be anecdotal, it comes up a lot. Reservations, whether it's true or not for any particular area, tend to gain reputations for having issues with alcoholism and drug use. Pine Ridge is one such reservation. In fact, it's a dry reservation where the sale and possession of alcohol is illegal. That being said, as I mentioned earlier, individuals with a history of drug use or even alcohol abuse don't always fall on the top of investigators' urgency list. This isn't particularly a problem exclusive to indigenous individuals, but I see it brought up as a criticism and legitimate concern against investigators in the missing and murdered indigenous cases more than any other race. Growing up, not too far from the Meskwaki Reservation myself here in Iowa, I'm also more than aware of the drunk, druggy, and partying stereotype that gets thrown around a lot, as if that's somehow an excuse not to help the missing and murdered. You know, the play stupid games and win stupid prizes argument. I'm not looking to stand on the soapbox and preach here. The fact of the matter is that doing what I do, as well as just being a decent human being, it's my duty to not only bring attention to these cases, but also to the bigger picture surrounding them. We do, in fact, live in a world where in recent times, more people were outspoken about the indigenous woman being removed from the Land of Lakes butter container than they were about real-life indigenous women being removed from existence, citing the logo removal as being woke garbage. We also live in a world where, mere months ago, in the midst of the Gabby Petito case, Indigenous women took the opportunity to express their concerns about the lack of coverage on their cases, never once trying to take away from Gabby, but only trying to get their voices heard as well. They were accused of race-baiting and exaggerating their situation for media attention, as if there was no actual problem. Numbers don't lie, and if you can't look at the statistics mentioned earlier, coupled with the lack of any kind of coverage, and not accept that there is an issue, then I really don't know what to tell you. I will note that South Dakota has taken some steps in recent years. In 2019, the state passed a law that would require the State Division of Criminal Investigation to collect data on missing and murdered indigenous people and create procedures and training for investigating cases involving women and children. This would also make work and sharing of information between tribal and non-tribal police easier, effectively increasing the chance of these missing individuals to be found. Several of the surrounding states would follow suit establishing similar laws. In March of 2021, a bill was brought by Representative Perry Poirier, whose district includes the Pine Ridge Reservation and who is indigenous herself, was signed into law by Governor Christy Noem, establishing staff within the Attorney General's office to work with state, local, and tribal law enforcement on indigenous missing person cases. While both these measures are still very much in their infancy, they appear to very much be a start in the right direction. Circling back around to Larissa Lonehill, as far as theories go, there really isn't much to go on. What we do know is that the last family member to see Larissa was her mother on October 2nd, and then the last family member to hear from her at all was her cousin, via text, the next day on October 3rd. We know that she then left her boyfriend's house with two men, one of which she claimed was her cousin, although it was later found out that he indeed was not. We then have the two men giving conflicting stories, with one saying that he never saw Larissa at all, 
and the other stating that they dropped Larissa off at a party, and they never saw her after that. What we don't know is anything about the party, such as where it was at, if police spoke to anyone there, or if Larissa was ever actually there at all. Then we have the Rapid City Police Department, who clearly know more than they're saying, but must not know enough to close the case. They mention following several leads, suspects, and they top it all off with stating that they believe her body, not Larissa herself, but her body, is located within a 100 mile radius of Rapid City. All the while, they stress that the case is still a missing persons case. Given the lack of information here, I don't want to speculate too much as I feel that would be irresponsible on my part, but I can offer a few quick thoughts. I don't really even know where to start, so I guess I'll just start at what I find to be least likely, and that's that Larissa just up and left of her own volition. Larissa may have had her problem with drugs, so much so that she lost custody of her daughter. However, it's noted time and time again that Larissa would take whatever measures necessary to see her daughter, including walking and hitchhiking long distance. She's also noted as having strong connections with her mother, sister, and her sister's children. I just find it hard to believe that she just up and left. But at this time, we also can't totally rule it out. The other theory is that she met with some sort of foul play. As far as how and by who, though, is still anyone's guess. I guess we should start with the two individuals she was allegedly known to be with. Unfortunately, we know nothing about them. We know that Carol, Larissa's sister, believes the connection to Larissa was drugs, based off some text messages she had seen. Is it possible that Larissa left with these two men? They took some sort of drugs, either at a party, or just the three of them, and Larissa ended up overdosing? And in their panic, they transported Larissa's body somewhere as yet to be found? I'd say it's highly in the realm of possibility, and it's definitely not an uncommon scenario. If it happened at a party, or more likely a small gathering, chances are those in attendance were part of that same scene, and they were going to want to wash their hands of the situation as well, giving them more than enough incentive to stay quiet. Or maybe for one reason or another, something went south between the three and Larissa ended up killed. The possibilities are many in that scenario, and as I said, given a lack of information, I don't want to just start throwing random scenarios around. One thing I can say is, I don't think it would have been something planned. If it was planned, then they weren't exactly criminal masterminds, as they couldn't even come up with a matching alibi as to what they did that night. Or maybe, she did leave with the two men, went to a party, and something went wrong from there. Although, I still find the party part iffy as there just doesn't seem to be verification that she was ever at one. Then again, maybe she was at some sort of gathering, the police were able to talk to everyone there, and through that they were able to piece together enough information to at least formulate some sort of theory, such as believing that Larissa's body was within 100 miles of Rapid City. Investigators have been very tight-lipped, which would explain why if there was actually a party or not, it was never released to the public. Five years ago, Larissa Lonehill vanished. She left behind a daughter, who would be seven now, and a loving family. She was a mother, a daughter, a sister, and an aunt. A woman who, despite her downs in life, was loved and thought so highly of by those she loved. As usual, I highly recommend you share this podcast as well as any sources you decide to check out on Larissa's case. The more people that are able to see it, the better. There may not be a ton of coverage by mass media on her case, but we owe it to her as creators, and even more importantly, consumers, of true crime to make sure her story is shared beyond our own earphones.
Larissa Lonehill was last seen in the Rapid City, South Dakota area between October 2nd and 3rd, 2016. She is described as being a Native American female, brown hair, brown eyes, standing 5'2 or 5'3, and weighing between 120 and 130 pounds. Her nickname is Rissa, and she may use the first name Lisa. She has the following tattoos, a paw print on her hand, and the words Mom, Lisa, and Aluda elsewhere on her body. If alive today, she would be approximately 26 years old. If you have any information on Larissa Lone Hill's disappearance, please contact Detective Ryan Gebhard with the Rapid City Police Department at 605-394-4134. An anonymous tip can also be sent by texting the letters RCPD and the information to 847-411. If you're looking for further information, there isn't a ton. The Rapid City Journal has the most coverage with a whole two articles, while KOTA-TV and KELO Land News also do a decent amount of coverage. I also encourage you to follow the Facebook page searching for Larissa Lonehill, which is ran by Larissa's aunt. If you're interested in learning more about the missing and murdered indigenous women epidemic from someone way more knowledgeable than me on the matter, I highly recommend listening to Connie Walker's eight-part podcast, Stolen, The Search for Germaine, as well as her Missing and Murdered podcast. She herself is an indigenous woman from Canada, and she has a wealth of information and does fantastic work. If you're interested in sharing other cases on social media involving indigenous individuals, you can follow the Facebook pages Missing and Murdered Native Americans and Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA. Both pages also share a large amount of cases from Canada where the same epidemic also persists. If you want to tell me what you think happened, or have comments, questions, or case suggestions, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, on Facebook by searching Midwest Mystery Files, or you can find me on Twitter at Files Midwest. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFiles at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like what you hear, please feel free to comment and rate. This helps make the podcast more visible in searches and also helps us get these cases out there. Even if you leave me a one-star rating, I would appreciate a review telling me what you did not like about it so I can look at everything from all angles and improve as I go. Thank you to everyone who has done so already. Happy holidays, and I will see you all in two weeks. Hey guys, sorry if I sound terrible right now. I am using my in-board microphone. Um, I don't have access to my normal one. I realized when I was editing that I said the email address wrong, so if you're new to the podcast and you wish to email me, the email address is actually midwestmysteryfilespod at gmail.com. I just forgot to throw that in there the first time around. All right, thanks. See you guys later.